What is up, fellow thermonuclear AFers? I am Dan Valley coming at you with a pre-intro before we hop into the second part of this mailbag to let you know that this is part two of what's going to be a three-part mailbag because we had so many questions this week. Before we get started, the usual reminders to continue subscribing to us wherever you get us. If you're on YouTube, hit that sub button, like, comment, help the algorithm love us back, help us continue to grow this community. Also, subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, if you're checking us out for the first time on the interwebs, um, Stitcher, Google, wherever you get your podcasts, we are there. We appreciate permanent subscriptions. Throw us the cross subs, be on YouTube plus a podcast player. And if you've done both of those things, consider shouting us out. Word of mouth recommendations to people who you know that are looking for an NBA podcast. Uh, Follow us on the socials. All the links to our TikTok uh, and handles to our TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter in the podcast and YouTube description. They're also basically just at Hardwood Knox. Instagram is at Hardwood underscore Knox, though. And join the Discord. We have Grant in there. The link to that is in the YouTube and podcast description as well. Last, but certainly not least, I want to thank everyone who's been tagging us in their Spotify wraps or letting us know how long they've listened to us for this past year. It genuinely does mean the world. And I try and be transparent about that. And I I say it so much that it's probably a cliche on this podcast, but just given how close uh, we were to shuttering things over the off season, uh, it means a lot that there's still a, you know, that we have a, what feels like a very loyal community, even though it's not the biggest and we are continuously trying to grow it. Uh, And I did just want to say something because I guess it's like we're approaching the end of the year now that we're in December. So it's a time for reflection. And I want to make it clear that I'm, I never want to stop being grateful for our listeners, for our discord members, the people who help us really, you know, dictate and direct where the content is going because we want to put stuff out there that you like even if you're not necessarily agreeing with everything we say and uh discord's been fun um i do see more people active in there independent of me actually saying something which is really really cool i do try and respond as much as possible and it just it it really it does mean a lot whenever people are tagging us or shouting us out on twitter um where i've gotten dm saying that our podcast was recommended by someone like that's just super cool and the mailbag questions are super appreciated as well and it's like i've said before and it's on behalf of grant like we just don't do this like at this point like again it's just the interest of full transparency we know what's going on with advertising revenue it's just been slashed this podcast has never been this is probably the least profitable stretch that the podcast has been uh for me personally i've been doing this for seven years it's luckily i'm not in a position where i need the podcast to do anything but it's very much a passion project and it's the listeners uh, the discord members, the people who interact with us and actually have discussions with us who are consuming our content that really drive me to keep going. And, you know, I recognize that this podcast isn't perfect. It has things that we need to improve upon. I would love to, you know, extend our reach. Of course, I do feel like, you know, to point out a flaw that I probably have my hands in just too many things at the moment. I'm trying to, you know, run a TikTok and Instagram where I don't necessarily even see the benefit of those um, necessarily. And like the YouTube channel is sort of stagnated to where we're not getting hundreds of new subscribers every month. And so I might need to centralize the focus. Um, It's things that are constantly shifting, but, and there are, there are moments, there are days, there are weeks where I just, I don't understand why I am doing this, why we're doing this at all. And it feels like a waste of time, but then every so often um, there'll just be moments where it's, you know, listeners saying something, tagging us on, on Twitter, shouting us out on Twitter, getting a Discord message, or just remembering how fun it is to interact with all the people that listen that does keep me going. And that's not to just, that's not to go, woe is me. That's just to reiterate, which I will continue to do because I do think it's something that podcasts could do a better job of, of, of how grateful I am for the community, for giving us a reason 
to to keep going. And again, for being so nice and for continuing to listen to us, especially longtime listeners as well. With that long ass ramble out of the way, though, let's get to part two of this uh, three part mailbag. Grant was here for the first two parts. We did like a, like. I don't know, 90 plus minutes of a mailbag together. So we split up into two and I have a solo one coming out for part three, since we just had so many great questions. Let's hop right into it. This next question comes from Demos Cole. And he asks, is this Kyrie is, is, is Kyrie can getting rid of Kyrie be addition by subtraction for the Nets is essentially the question. This was posed during Kyrie's uh, suspension from the team. I still think it's a fair question. Either way, the Nets are four and two, since Kyrie came back, but where do you, I think this question matters because Kyrie Irving is probably not going to be a member of the Nets next year. That's just the expectation. So just where do you land on this? Well, I mean, just off if we, you know, on the court, I'm open to the idea that like, I mean, he's been the, he's been the second best player on a championship team and was the second best player on a team that if not for the Warriors could have won three or four. So like, and he's not that guy, but he's close enough to where if you have Kevin Durant as your number one, Kyrie is your number two. You have decent role players. This is nothing new. Brooklyn has has had and has the talent to be really dangerous. Um, I just wouldn't want him in my locker room as a voice that it just wouldn't want him around. So the addition by subtraction idea is pretty clear to me. I just wouldn't want him on my team full stop. Um, but as far as the Nets playing better, I, I think it's just a comp. It's it's a it's the less like sexy answer, but it's just a combination of stuff like you know, Ben Simmons has been a lot better. Um, Seth Curry's back and making everything, you know, from three, you get Joe Harris looking a little better. Durant's been on a heater. It's not just Kyrie not being there, but if the question is, would the Nets be better without him? Like in every sense, except for, yeah, he might get you 30 and win you a few games uh, and, you know, maybe win a playoff series. I don't know. Like, yeah, I think so. I mean, it's just just for the overall organizational health and just just for sort of making it a more manageable, you know, easy to run, potentially just as successful franchise. Like, yeah, I, I, I'd be good with no Kyrie on the Nets. I think he can it can be it, he can complicate the Ben Simmons fit at points. And before Ben Simmons's injury, he did look a lot, a lot better. Um, I don't know if it would necessarily be addition by subtraction. Like you need, I would want to get value for Kyrie Irving, but like just the general vibes around that team were yeah. better when he wasn't there. He's a fantastic basketball player, but when you have Durant and Patty Mills and Joe Harris and Seth Curry, I don't know. Like, yeah, I guess Kyrie's like the other guy in the half court that you would trust to go out and get a bucket before Seth and Joe Harris and, and all that. So I don't think it's, I will say, I don't think it's from a basketball perspective. I don't think it's just addition by subtraction. If you get rid of, if Kyrie and also if Kyrie leaves, like is Kevin Durant long for Brooklyn at that yes. point is the other element of that question. Yeah. Well, that was easy. Let's move on to the next one. Um, this is from glad. What is one rule change you think will happen after this year? And what is something you want to change? Bonus question. Any thoughts on what feels like an emphasis on calling more travels and I'm throwing in more carries cause I've watched Jordan pool. <laughs> so I, I think they're going to change and they should have the clock killing gimmick where we've seen the Grizzlies and the Grizzlies. I knew did it like the Celtics were just like, I didn't really, I guess I wasn't watching like intuitively enough with them um, letting the ball roll. So that times comes off the clock, but not the shot clock. That just needs to change. Yeah. I think they need to change. I think they will change that. We kind of saw that when the take foul was becoming, I guess that was a longer standing issue or at least one that was noticed for longer. 
a rule change that I think should happen is interesting. I don't understand why. I'm not trying to slow the game down more. So, like, let's put a time limit on how long it takes to review plays and challenges. But, like, if you successfully challenge a call, why do you lose your challenge? Yeah. Why, like, shouldn't you still have it? <laughs> I Here, I'll, I'll compromise. Here's the thing. I, I think that, well, the reason you lose it is because, you know, you might have, like, five or six challenges if a coach gets hot yeah. on the challenges. And then you're just, but to mitigate that, my rule change I'd like to see is fewer timeouts. Teams get seven. And it's like, this is the oldest complaint ever is that the last 20 seconds of a basketball game can take like 20 minutes because both sides are calling timeouts just to advance the ball or to you know, just stop the clock so we can get an offense defense sub. Like, I hate that. It totally ruins the flow of the game. It takes a lot of the spontaneity out of it. You see some coaches that instead of calling a timeout for a last second shot after a made basket, they'll just let the guys run up and like, that's how you get Steph Curry hitting it from half court in OKC to win the game in game six of the what 2016 conference. Like you get amazing plays and sometimes you get better shots with just the free flowing, you know, approach instead of let's draw something up. I just think we need maybe one or two timeouts per half. And if you want to save those for the last, you know, two minutes, great. If not, we just don't need, we don't need seven timeouts per team plus replay plus TV timeouts. Plus, like, I don't know, you're going to get an infectious disease control timeout once a game. It's just like, it's too much. I'd, I'd like to be able to watch an NBA game without skipping free throws, you know, like when you're trying to really bank a few games in a night in like under two, it's got to be under two hours. Give me 90 minutes. Like, let's let's move it along. Let's let the action 90 be. Minutes. That's like <laughs> that's shaving an hour off the game at this point. I think, you know what, we should speed the, let's have six minute quarter. No. So the other thing, the carrying and the travel stuff for sure have been a point of emphasis. Um, I hope this goes one of two ways because what always happens with stuff like this is this usually happens at the very beginning of a season. Referees will have points of emphasis and they will enforce the shit out of them for like two weeks or a month. And then you never hear from it again, like delay of games on like touching the ball after a made basket two years ago, just every single time we were getting delay a game on yeah. the defensive team. And then it just stopped. It's still like, you're not supposed to touch it, but now if you catch it and kind of throw it to the ref or the other team, they don't, they don't whistle you for that. So for the carrying stuff, either keep it at this standard where we're calling it like justifiably, because there are a ton of carries now in everybody's bag, keep it like this or just go back to how it was before, but like the selective enforcement and the, we're going to do it for a month. And then like Jordan Poole will be allowed to carry all the time again, starting in January. Like that's not good for anybody. Cause I think you just need either call it or don't. And let's, let's just keep it consistent because <laughs> I don't like the idea that we're going to remember November as the month where the NBA called 500 carries and then they didn't call a hundred the rest of the year that, that I don't want. My conspiracy is the NBA was too worried about like offenses becoming just so thermonuclear. Well, um, what do you do? Like, cause I think that's legitimate because you can't touch anybody anymore, too. That's like that they, but, but and the average offensive rating right now would exceed what it right. was last year, I think. I'd have to go back and look, actually. It was 113 last year. I don't know what it is off the top of my head this year. I'll, I'll have to look at that really quickly. Um, but I think you're right on the point of emphasis. There's stuff like this every single year it feels like and if i had to guess because they would be worried about slowing down the pace of the game um oh it was one it's 112.9 this year so mission accomplished down from 113 uh i i think that it's not going to be like as big of a point of emphasis when i was thinking about this question i was like well are they trying to like limit the number of these like 
charges that players are going to try and draw by stepping in on like is I, I don't really know if there's any rhyme or reason though to why you would enforce um travels and, and carries more often than not so uh, let's see if this sticks in like january or february the other thing i would like to see changed ban the last two minute report because what is i yeah. like the transparency the notion i get it but like it's also not hard to review those things in real time it's like let's speed up the process and implement the last two minute report in real time as it's happening so that let's say I think Kings fans have been the ones that feel like they're the one that, that they've been jilted the most this year so that the Kings aren't losing games like by like, or that these games aren't ending on calls that they deem to miss. It's not hard to review like those, like you have, you don't need the refs like to get on, stare at the screen for like 80 minutes. Like you have Secaucus, New Jersey, like let's like, you can speed up that entire process while also expanding it. I feel you, like you'd think the other, the last thing is I really thought that the the James Harden like double triple step back thing was was just not going to be allowed. I thought there would be a point of emphasis on that, and and it just hasn't really happened. I'm still not convinced that that's not a travel. And, and like again, watching a lot of Steph Curry, like man, he gets away with a lot of like that was really three and a half steps, and they're just quick little shuffles before he's fully caught it. And it's there's just like it all the you know what it is. All it is is that type of play just kind of looks wrong to me. Like it looks like you shouldn't be able to do that. And maybe it's because my eyes are getting slow, but it started with like the late gather and guys like LeBron and Harden really weaponizing that to get essentially three steps. Giannis does it. And I guess that's just okay now. Um, but which is fine. Cause again, it's like, let's juice the offense because fans like offense and we're selling a product. So they should like the product. Right. But, but the double triple step back thing is, it just it just rubs me the wrong way sometimes but oh you did that one so let's move on to oh wow okay this oh no wait i'm skipping one some of these questions might be a little bit spicy but glad also asked which trade was worse now that it has been a, a few years uh the lakers trade for ad or the clippers trade for pg the clippers gave up shea and five first round pick we all know the trades but the clippers gave up five first round picks four unprotected one protected along with two pick swaps and haven't even gone to the finals. The Lakers get Brandon Ingram, Lonzo, and Josh Hart, the number four pick in 2019, unprotected 22 and 24 first, and unprotected swaps in 23, 25, three first and two swaps, all unprotected. The Lakers won a title, but have really screwed themselves with the lack of assets and poor roster construction they have now. If we wanted a grand scheme of things, questions is it worth mortgaging the future for a single championship? So it's a, it, this is a floor or ceiling question because the easy answer is, well, the Clippers trade is worse because the Lakers trade netted a title and anything it's, it's worth it. And that's the, the zooming out question is like, is there anything you shouldn't do if it results in a title? And I think a lot of executives would say whatever it takes, because it's so hard to do it. Only one team does it every year. If you can win a title, you should do whatever you possibly can, especially going back to the last a couple questions ago. Like you're not going to be a coach or a GM or a head executive of a team for 20 years or 15 or 10, even in most cases, like you might get three to seven years, maybe a little more. And if you can win a title in that window, who cares if your predecessor doesn't have any draft picks left? Like that's, that's how I think it makes sense for executives to operate at the same time. The Lakers floor now because of that trade is like real scary because you're looking at the swap this year that might net the Pelicans another really lucrative pick. You got no assets. You can't, you can't give up anything because you only have two firsts you can trade to get off a bad contract and Russell Westbrook. Like it's going to get ugly. The Clippers, 
they've got like eight guys you could trade for a protected first or maybe something better than that. They've been good. They still might, you know, in the next year or two reach their ceiling. Their floor is like, they're not going to bottom out. They're going to be okay. Um, what that, that doesn't necessarily relate to the trade. It's more about how the rosters were managed. Like after the trades with the Lakers, just blowing every off season. Um, so I think probably I have to still say that the Clippers trade is worse losing SGA. That's tough. Uh, cause you could make the case that he would be a better piece to have than either Kawhi or Paul George right now, potentially. Um, but the Lakers won a title. So like, I just have to keep it simple and, and go that way. If you have to pick one, it's you, is it worth mortgaging everything for a title? And I think the answer is yes. And the Lakers are only so fucked up now because of decisions they have made after the fact, yeah. which I think is kind of colors that, but I will say, and uh, this was pointed out in discord and it's been pointed out many times. We've discussed it. That Paul George trade was also about getting Kawhi Leonard. Right. And so like the best way I ever saw it phrased was that Sam Presti found a way to trade both Kawhi and Paul George without ever having Kawhi on the thunder. Yeah. And so I think that gave the thunder a unique form of leverage. And also just like, it's not over yet for it's over for the Lakers. And I think like there's a finality there. It's not, we don't know what's going on with Kawhi fully long-term with the Clippers. It's not over yet for them. And so I, this is like kind of a compound answer, but I would give a definitive. If I'm the Lakers, would I do it all over again? I absolutely would because it, yeah. I don't care what you say about the bubble title. It resulted in another banner. Yep. Yeah. Keeps it easy. Um, I'm glad you're answering this one first. This is from Nugs. Would you rather have Bruce Brown or MPJ if you have to make the choice? For the Nuggets team, Michael Porter Jr. is less mission critical to them than Bruce Brown. That is just, it's in a vacuum. Like the health concerns with Michael Porter Jr. too, he's dealing with some heel stuff at the moment. Um, and it was clearly bothering him before that. I think they just said it was building up and he was shooting. He went from shooting like a trillion percent from three to like a negative trillion percent. So clearly mm -hmm. something was bothering him. But like you could actually run. Like, I don't know that you, you don't want him setting up like live dribble possessions, but like, you can run the offense through Bruce Brown. Um, he is like, he's hit some like really nice runners and floaters this year. He can be used as a screener. He's hit his threes for the most part. There's these ultra wide open threes. When you look at the nuggets, having Jamal, Demur having Jamal, Jamari, Jamal Murray, Nicole Jokic, Bones Island, even this version of Aaron Gordon, like, holy shit. I would, Bruce Brown is more important than the nuggets winning a title this year than Michael Porter jr. And I don't think that's spicy now in a vacuum. Would I rather have Michael Porter Jr. Bruce Brown? The idea of Michael Porter Jr. easily, but given his availability, the fact that we haven't seen, and this might be just a function of the roster, but like we don't really know what he is as a self-creator, let alone a table setter for others. There's been some tantalizing defense too, like from a help perspective, when you look at his the plays that he can make coming over uh, around the basket. But if you're trying to win a title this season and you have Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray, I think like <laughs> Bruce Brown might be my answer here. I hate this question. <laughs> I think, I think the best version of, of Porter is a guy that is going to score 30 a game and make like 40 something percent of a ridiculous volume of threes. But I also think that that version probably doesn't exist on this Nuggets team. Like he might be someone that on a worse team could just go get like if he's on the Wizards instead of Beal, for example, or something like that, or in, on the 
I don't know, the Bulls instead of Zach Levine, and he gets like that level of usage, that many shots. I think like that's a really valuable player. But then you've got the cost, you've got the injury history, you've got the current injury. And really, it, it, I guess I have to come around and agree with you that if Brown is, if this is really, if this is Bruce Brown, like for real, like the, you know, that's going to get you double figure scoring five and five, make his threes, defend multiple positions, be usable, like on the ball in a pick and roll, be the roller, like that's still in the bag, you know, from his Nets days. Yeah, man. Cause again, let's, let's do, let's go back to the same theme. Like, I don't see Bruce Brown getting played off the floor in a final series. I was about to ask you that, though. Is it more likely that Bruce Brown gets played on the floor or Michael Porter Jr.? Because there are – Bruce Brown's playoff offense is just something that's sort of – like the Nets have not made uh, – maybe I'm just like blanking on the um, the 2020 playoff run. But like like they haven't made like this super deep playoff push with Bruce Brown as a mission. So I, there is like questions on how his offense to me might hold up in the postseason. That's the thing. I think he's better now than he's ever been. So it's like, is this for real? He's, I think this is age 26 season. So like, yeah, maybe he's, this is just Bruce Brown is only 26. This is just, he's peaking. Wow. So, so well, now, now you're going to make me check that. I'm pretty I'll sure. That's it. Um, but if you're right, he might be a future. All, I'm just kidding about the all-star. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I, I guess my yeah, risk, right. my, wow. my risk aversion says MPJ, the ceiling's really high. Boy, we've talked a lot. I've talked a lot about floors and ceilings, but like his ceiling is high, but is he going to reach it because of health and because of role and because of team context where Bruce Brown can just, if Bruce Brown could just do this, I mean, he's already playing slightly more minutes per game than MPJ. Like, I mean, it's I, that's why I hate this question. I feel like this is one we're going to look back on when Porter Jr. has made like six all-star games and feel stupid, but... I freaking love this question, actually. It's probably... it's I do think it's probably a tougher question to answer from the Nuggets perspective than a lot of other teams who I do feel would still fall to. And the contract was a good point, by the way, because it's not just the investment you have in MPJ, but how cheap Bruce Brown Jr. is. Right. That's the thing. Uh, let's see. I'll, I'll throw you this one. I, uh, this is from Bondum34. Assuming Jokic and Embiid are all NBA centers and Anthony Davis makes second team or first as a forward, who's the third team center? So basically, who is the third best center in the league right now after Jokic and Embiid? So I'm going by the play-by-play data here. The answer is Pascal Siakam. Oh, that's such a cheating answer. I hate that you picked that. He's been better than everybody else, but I would say it's it has to be Bam after that. No, I mean, it has the Rudy Gobert town stuff. I like I Gobert has been fine, and but they're trying to do more stuff with him offensively, and it doesn't really always look great. He's been able to prop up their defense a, a lot of the times for his minutes. They had like they've actually climbed the ranks. Have you looked at where they are in defense lately? They're actually what are they second or something? Like they're like, great when he's on the floor, like right. And know. they're they're uh oh no, I I was looking at just on the floor, but yeah, they're they're down to 14th in defensive efficiency. So excuse me, I don't know why I thought they were second. Um, but yeah, it's is it like who else is in that conversation? So just like estimated plus minus and some other stuff, I, we've, I think Brooke Lopez is someone that's going to have a case, especially with all the defensive player of the year buzz that he's getting. And he's on a great team and everyone on that team won't shut up about how mad he is. Saying Siakam is, is, is <laughs> he's not really a center. That's no, I, if you're asking me who I'd want, I, I think like the logical answer is bam, even though like a lot of the advanced numbers don't like him. I just think it's like if you had to just pick someone, it's got to be Bam. But Lopez has a case. I mean, like 
everyone in Sacramento is going to say, oh, Sabonis is like 18, 11, and 6, and the Kings offense is great. Like, miss me with the Sabonis stuff. Whoa, um, I, that felt like an unnecessary stray. <laughs> He's, I said, like, you don't have to insult him while not calling him the third best center I, in the league right now. I mentioned, I so yeah, okay, but look, so that you mentioned Gobert, I think, uh, well, just to so I touch the other side of the opposite of someone catching a stray, I think Jared Allen, you know, if he gets healthy and is playing, is probably someone you're gonna want to hey, think Christian about. His minutes get ratcheted up, hey, is it him? <laughs> no, I think, I think for me, it's somewhere between Lopez and Adebayo. Um, but I'd lean out of bio. Um, it go, Gobert would have been a pretty easy answer like most years before this one, just if you're looking at like defensive impact and all this other stuff. But I think uh, I, I don't think I don't think we're there yet this year. If if that happens, I'm going to leapfrog to a question because I think this question was was made for you, and it comes from uh, Tybal Wingspan. Uh, been thinking about the dubs and how the defense had been what puts them over the top, only caring about 16 playoff wins for Clay during. 2015 to 2019 where would you have put him on a list of the top 10 total defensive value of all players for that five-year stretch not including centers and for whatever your answer is what percent of that defender do you think is reasonable to expect from current clay so clay is one of the hardest defensive players to evaluate uh because none of the numbers have ever liked him um like you just have, it's basically a watch the games argument, which always sucks because it makes it seem like you're just really sub- subject to the bias of everything. <laughs> but so just for example, like he's never, ever had a, a consistently been a high steals guy, like just doesn't get steals. He's never once had a positive defensive box plus minus, which is really fucking hard to do when you're on a lot of defenses that are top five and sometimes number one. I mean, that filters out for who you're out there with, but like, the numbers just don't the numbers say he's a bad defender which which isn't the case i think the way you make the case for him be so he's not like a top 10 defensive player at any stretch i don't think of the years in question of like 15 to 19 just objectively um in terms of like his value to the specific situation he was in like that's where you make the argument that he's really vital because for years and years he would guard Tony Parker when the Warriors were always trying to beat the Spurs. Right. And, and Steph couldn't do that or wouldn't do that. Wasn't asked to do that. And then against the Cavs, it was really common to see him stand up Kevin Love in the post. So he was kind of the guy, like Draymond puts out all the fires on that defense, especially when they were really great, but clay was kind of second in that effort. Um, Andrew Bogut deserves credit too, especially early on, but clay could be asked to do, to defend four positions and do it pretty well. Unspectacularly, but he would cover for guys that couldn't guard the positions that they should have been able to, or would normally have been asked to. And he also was just solid, like just was where he was supposed to be. Wouldn't make a ton of mistakes, but like, I think probably if anyone's even thinking about him as a top 10 defender at any stretch from 15 to 19, like, I don't think you're, I I can't get there. Um, Independent of big men too. Yeah, no, I think yeah. even if you're, well, maybe if you're just talking wings, even that's just like, you've got to, you can't lean on the numbers because he's was a bad defender statistically. Um, I think, here's the, I, think here's the, I was going to say, yeah. the thing with that is just like, you, and you laid all this out, like being able to tell him to just go guard the point of attack, his defensive metrics would be better if he grabbed rebounds, which was just, that was not a focus of his because he was right. spending so much time in these tough perimeter covers. 
And when you're having those tough perimeter covers, it's almost harder to get steals because all of your steals have to come like outside the, the passing lane then like you're, or you're not stumbling into loose balls. Mm-hmm. And so I actually think that he, you know, this wasn't the Avery Bradley paradox. Yeah. I actually think that Clay Thompson was underrated defensively. Now top 10 during that time, I honestly, I don't know, but yeah. I almost felt like you were just telling him short there, like in terms of well, perimeter defenders. Here's what I'd say. I'd say, I think the best way to measure like the real value of a player is can he be an important piece of a team that is playing at like a really high level um, and and against different types of teams that are going to try to, that are going to try to go at you with mismatches of either smaller guys or bigger guys. And he held it. He did everything that was asked of him. And so I think that's really valuable because there's just a lot of guys that, you know, that are probably better physical defenders than him that just wouldn't do that. You know, that would like, I'm just going to guard a wing. You know, I, I'm not chasing, I'm not chasing like Tony Parker at his peak was like, there aren't a lot of guys that are harder to stay with in a half court set when Tim Duncan is setting a screen. It's just like, that's a hell of a job. And he spared Curry from that. And like, that's valuable. That's a specific example, but it's illustrative of like what he did. So I just, I don't know how to rank that. I know that I know that the Warriors defense would not have been nearly as good without him. Um, but I don't, I just like, how do you, how do you rank a guy in the top 10 of some, it's, it's, it's hard. I don't know. It's, it's so context dependent. Um, I definitely re- never remember thinking to kind of tie into the second part of this question. Oh man, he got burned there. Or like he, he, that's maybe not a matchup for him. I don't remember thinking that even when he's guarding ones and fours this year, I think he's maybe 70% of like what he was before. And there are nights where it's like, I don't know what the percentage is. It's just like half because he just can't, he's had nights where, and like, yeah, if I tore my Achilles in my ACL, like I I would be uh, having a hard time staying in front of the best athletes in the world. Um, But he's, he's definitely not that same guy now. I think the main thing is he's moved up the positional spectrum where now it's like some threes are too quick. Fours are like, it's better if he gets to use his strength and his lateral mobility because it's just not, it's not there. I do think he can still be part of a really good defense. Um, and, and I think the Warriors have been better and will be better uh, on, on that end of the floor. There's a long way to go for them to be back to where they were, especially at the beginning of last year. But um, he's just, he's not going to be that guy. He's not going to be someone you could throw out there on anyone but a center and feel like we don't need to worry about that. that those days are, that, I don't think we're there. That's what Andrew Wiggins is for. That's they've got, they've got the guy that can do that. He's ever more valuable defensively again than Andrew Wiggins. Never. No. We, I mean, Wiggins is a great defensive player. Like just, you know, I've been saying that in 2019. Right. <laughs> right. Like the fact of that where Wiggins is today is what keeps me from like giving up on almost anybody in their first like handful of seasons on a bad team, just because you never would like Wiggins as like the perfect three and D role player that can get you a bucket when you need it, but doesn't shoot that much. Like that was just unfathomable in the early years of Wiggins. I can I ask you this question about Draymond Green too, just because I was hoping you would, because this is a really fun question. Glad asked if you were an NBA GM, what is the highest draft pick you would use on a player that would be guaranteed to have Draymond Green's career? To clarify, I don't mean the titles are guaranteed, but like essentially all the things Dre brings to the table as a player: rebounding, passing, leadership until he punch pool, energy, knowing he will essentially be an All NBA defender for seven plus years, DPOY, etc. Um, so what's the highest pick you would use? Glass said he would definitely use a lottery pick, but he wasn't sure if he he could use a top five. They could use a top five pick on him. 
so if we just put aside like all the questions we always have to ask about Draymond, you know, would he do this if it weren't the Warriors and if he didn't have Steph Curry? I, we can put that aside and just look at the drafts around him. So I'm going top five minimum. And that's okay. just based on, I, I just looked, I scanned the drafts. He's starting from 2010 to 2015. He was picked in 2012. He came off the board 35th. So in 2010, I think the only guy you take over him is Paul George um, that I'd even have a discussion about. 2011, you take Kawhi over him. You probably take Jimmy Butler. You probably take Kyrie. And then Clay. I think, is someone you probably take Draymond over, but that's where we are. So that's four guys. 2012, you take Anthony Davis. You take Damian Lillard, Brad Beal, Chris Middleton. Debatable. Next year, Giannis for sure. Rudy Gobert is a really interesting one. I think I'd take Draymond over Gobert, um, but that's it. 2014, Embiid and Jokic. That's it. 2015, Booker. And then it's like Towns and Porzingis, probably not. So like you're top five for all those. And that's, you know, a couple of years before and several after. I think Draymond has had better career, a better career than a lot of those guys. Um, and it's certainly one more than all of them. So I don't know. I mean, it's a top five for me. I, I You can't take him first because he can't be the best player on your team. Mm-hmm. But other than that, like, I don't know what you're hoping to get out of the draft. It, you know, everybody wants the 30 points per game first option scorer, but you know, it, other than that, I don't know what you, what you prioritize more than a guy that could be the anchor of a playoff defense, you know, for 10 years. That's, that's tough to top. I think top five would be pretty easy. Does it get like difficult for you when you're talking top three or, you know, top one, like if you're guaranteed that because Draymond is like the engine of your entire team, it's really just the offensive question is what do you envision Draymond being offensively independent of the Warriors? And I'm with, like I said, I'm with you. I would use a top five pick without even thinking on someone yeah. who's guaranteed to have Draymond Green's career. I think Curry is such is a unique player. And I don't think it's realistic to say that Green would have developed the level of chemistry and for it to have been as effective as it's been with Curry with literally anyone else in the history of the sport. Like Curry is just the guy for him to play with. And I think Green would have figured out how to make some other star better. Um, but it's just, it, it's a, it's sort of a lightning in a bottle situation that he got to come to the Warriors and play with Curry because offensively, like you could throw him on one of those Rockets teams instead of PJ Tucker, right? With Harden, like you're just not guarding him in the corner. So what's he doing? He's not playing pick and roll with Harden because they just wanted to ISO. So there's just like, there's all these uncertainties, but depending on the situation, like, yeah, you top two or three, but t- like top five is, is like not a, not a question for, for me at all. I do wonder, I'd have to go and look back where I had him when, if I was still doing NBA 100 at that time, but 2015, 2016, like that Draymond Green, there was an argument of, is he a top 10 player? And like, that was an actual, that, that singular year or two year stretch. Yeah. Like, that was an actual question. Well, that's the year he shot 38% from three. Never happened so, again, like, but that's why I said, that's, yeah, that's happened once. So, so that guy, yeah, that guy was a top 10 player, I think. Uh, but I, it just, you know, this it, it's, he's, is he the most context dependent player? Like not taking away, like he would have been very good to great anywhere. I think if he'd gotten an opportunity to play, but even like his skill set is so unusual, like where else is he going to get, the agency and the use and the touches and all like, he's a really valuable offensive player, even though he's just not a shooter. Like that's, I don't know where else he gets that chance. Let's see. Do we have another one for you? Okay. I got one more. I think 
last one for you. Darkwing Duck, right? Darkwing Duck, my guy. Um, this is <laughs> Darkwing Duck coming with the tough ones. Um, yeah, he wants this. Is he's treat, they're treating this like we had forty hours to add to this. You I still need have... to go call up Kevin Pelton and Seth Part now for this one and give them like a a full day to work on it. Um, what is the biggest drop in a player's field goal percentage and three point percentage due to missed heaves over a season? Minimum. Thanks for the filter. Minimum one hundred three point attempts in the season. And do NBA players part two really? Do NBA players really worry about it enough to be the reason they don't heave? Thank God you did some a little bit of research on part one, but I do have a thought on part two. So um, well, the floor well, is yours, Seth. Part now. Yeah. So I try. I did try to actually find the answer to this question, but there's no way for me to like. Yeah, if I got into like filtering, setting up a code for like to filter it right into a spreadsheet, which I just don't have the time to do or to figure out how to do. But it wasn't available like together where the total attempts versus like. So it would have just taken too much. It would have taken too much like work for a mailbag question, in my opinion. These are supposed to be like more like not off the cuff. We do do research for them. But I did look. Steph Curry owns the record um, at least since which shot finder since 96, 97 on the number of heaves taken in a single season in 2016, 2017. He took 15 heaves and he made only one. And so you're talking about that's. Okay, yes, it's 6.7%, which sounds just so bad, but like your 14 misses caked into his three-point percentage that year. Um, he was still over 41%. And so you're not looking at something that would meaningfully uh, change his, his shot percentage. If you're wondering um, who... There's also, there's definitely some sort of wrong code here, by the way, for basketball writers, because Shot Finder, it's coming up that Chris Stops, Denny Avdia, Kyle Kuzma, Will Barton um, have all hit multiple heaves this year, which is just not true. And that Chris stops Denny and Kuzma specifically are three of five on heaves for the season. So get them up guys, get those heaves I, up. I didn't include that, but the most recent person to hit multiple heaves in a season before this year, uh, Marco Bellinelli in 2010, 2011, um, hit was two of two on heaves. I wanted to see, sorry, I was sorting by field goal percentage rate Steph Curry hit multiple heaves in 2015 2016 so did Vince Carter but just randomly in 20 I found that interesting 2010 2011 Marco Bellinelli went two of two on heaves apparently Got so um the answer to the second part is they absolutely think about it and you see it in real time develop some players really don't give a shit and mm -hmm. I think I understand why players would second guess especially if you're a non-star but like we as podcasters, we as media members, fans, we as fans, like we're filtering out heaves now. Like we're like teams are smart enough yeah. to where if they if they come to you in a meeting and say, "Well, we're not going to give you eight point seven million. We're not going to give you the mid level. We'll give you a million dollars less because you only shot thirty eight percent from three last year." And like if you filter out the fourteen heaves that you missed, like that brought it up to thirty. Not like. <laughs> I just, they absolutely think about it. So I get it. But also we should be beyond the point. Like they're, they're a separate form of data and I would campaign for, well, to make it even more accessible or more obvious because the fans shouldn't have to do the legwork on this is when you're actually looking at a player's three point percentage, can the heaves just not be included? And then you get into the, well, then should the last second shot clock ones and the half court be included? I get that there's like some complications there. I think in the half court, everything just needs to be fair. You had 24 seconds to figure out what the hell you were doing. You weren't under the actual uh, limitations of, oh, there's only 0.5 seconds left on the entire clock. Yeah, I think you could just 
fix that by just let's like talk about the range, like just you know, NBA.com sorts by just you know, you get your 25 to 29 feet, your 30 to 30, whatever. Like we just talk about that. And anytime it's over 40, we could or 50, we could just assume it's a heave and just not count it. Players absolutely do hold the ball and like feign an attempt after the buzzer goes off or other things, but like it whenever we talk about something like this. And this is the thing we can filter it out, but contracts have incentives for certain three point percentages. And Mo Harkless, do you remember this? In 2017, had a $500,000 incentive if he made 35% yeah. of his threes and he got to 35.1% and did not shoot a three in the last game of the season, like purposely was avoiding, like stepping in. Like, I think you know he was good for, him. good for him. Good for him. Get your money. But I'm just saying, like, that's, that's maybe something we want to look at a little more. Like, Hey team, if he's at X percent, let's like not incentivize him to take like to change his shot profile down the stretch of the season. Like that's a little, I don't, I'm not cool with that. Um, but yeah, like just watch literally any game. Like guys will just not heave it every at the end of every quarter. It just doesn't happen. They always duck. They always duck it, which like, I don't know. I don't know. You like, you care about your numbers, I guess. I have, this anecdote, do you know who the leader on B-ball refs, shot finders is in career since, again, only since 96, 97, who's made the most in the NBA during that almost three decades ban heaves? Andre Drummond. No, that was, I'm not the, where I thought you were going to go with that guess. But... I mean, Steph's the obvious answer, but it's not him or you Steph wouldn't be is tied for second with yeah. Jason Kidd and Dwayne Wade. Oh, Dwayne Wade. You know what? I can picture Dwayne Wade always chucking it. And just this season, apparently, Denny Avdia and Kyle Kuzma and Christoph Porzingis have ambled their way into the top 10 all time. They're going to break records as Wizards this year. Zach Randolph with five. Ooh. Zach, like Zach Randolph, five of 37 on heaves for a 13.5% clip. Pretty some good. people Some people would kill to shoot from that from the three-point line. So... <laughs> Uh, if you're wondering who has the most attempts, I feel like you're not going to get it either. Steph Curry second. Yeah, I was going to say Steph. Just I could picture him taking a lot of heaps because he expects to make them. Is, is the thing. Good for, and you know what? I respect him a ton for that. Yeah. Uh, Andre Miller, 113 heaves. Steph Curry is in second with um, 86. Hmm. And like those two are just shoulder, head and shoulders above, like Steve Blake third at 64 Ray Allen fourth at 61 Jamal Crawford at 59 uh Ray Felton comes in the top seven good for Ray Felton so <laughs> oh man good heave talk I always like to I imagine Andre Miller uh doing a heave somehow right after he fakes a timeout and then drives to the basket and gets a, a free layup which was his other thing he always did I was surprised um, that um Jared Jack wasn't on here but I guess just the meme wasn't indicative of his, his shot selection where he's hoisting it above the, like <laughs> throws it over the hoop in that next game. That's right. Yeah. That's going to go. That'll be remembered forever as maybe that's why he shouldn't take heaps or he should take him from farther. I think is probably, <laughs> I think that's it. Uh, unless you got anything else, I'll take us out. Thank you everybody for listening. Um, and for your questions too. We love, I really like doing these mailbags. I think Dan feels the same. Um, so engage with us, get on discord. I did it. Anyone can do it. Uh, like subscribe, uh, download, rate us, tell your friends word of mouth still matters. Uh, we really appreciate, uh, you, when anyone says anything nice about the pod on Twitter, uh, or anywhere else, uh, it doesn't have to be on social media, just, you know, 
tell someone quietly. That's good too. Um, join the discord. Last thing I did it. Um, would love to talk to everybody on there, get some more questions, all that other stuff. Uh, in closing, even though I shouted him out and said a nice thing about him, I'd like to apologize to Jared Allen and on behalf of Dan, uh, just want to celebrate the one and only greatest human alive that has ever lived and still can't get on the floor, but someday will, and justice will be served. Frank Nilakina.